Welcome to Down in the Data, an audio series where we talk to the data science and analytics staff of the Indiana Department of Correction and learn how they use data to solve problems. Hello again. My name is Chris Covey, and I am pleased to bring you another episode of Down in the Data. In a previous episode, we learned a little about the Indiana Department of Correction data analytics team. You remember Eric? Yeah. Uh, I'm Eric Ballinger. I am the Director of Data Science and Analytics for the Indiana Department of Correction. And Benjamin? Uh, I'm Benjamin Covington. I'm an Operation Analyst for the Data Science and Analytics Division. Well, this episode was recorded at the 2023 Corrections Technology Association Conference. In this episode, we'll dive a little deeper into the Indiana Department of Correction data analysis team and the behavior models that they develop to reduce assaults. All right, press the red button again. Okay, you did? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So who are you? Okay, so I am Sarah Shelley. I am the Chief Digital Officer for the Department of Correction, and I... That means I'm over technology as well as data science analytics, kind of the um, person who kind of tries to coordinate um, those efforts. And so I've been with the department for 16 years, uh, kind of coming up through uh, just general uh, data analytics. Uh, You know, if you know the difference between those, very descriptive, very um, kind of the more boring side of things. Um, And I then kind of went into legislative services and did that for a little while. Um, got started the uh, data science group and then uh, blended those two together and then also picked up uh, technology. So that is kind of who I am in a nutshell. Thank you. Um, so you said data science, data analytics. I mean, you mm-hmm. said you started the... The data science team, yeah. Data science team. Mm-hmm. How did that happen? Um, so, funny story is that um, I was looking around. Um, I had been uh, involved in a pretty big project and knew that I wanted to do something a little more. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, you know, let people know that that was what I was wanting to do, and they said, "Well." Maybe what can we do to keep you? Um, and I said, well, keep me involved in this portion of things. And they said, well, we can definitely tease that off. That group's too busy anyways. Um, the data analytics group was too busy anyways. So, um, yeah, kind of folded, folded that into my legislative job, actually. It was legislative services and data science for a little while. <laughs> That's a great pairing. Yeah. That's a great pairing. <laughs> How do you get into the, the data science part of it? Well, first, mm-hmm. what is your definition of data science? So for me, data science is taking um, a bunch of information from a bunch of different places and trying to make insights with it, as opposed to just reporting out information um, from you know just general sources. So um, non-standard data information systems is kind of what I kind of think differentiates it as well as just unique data insights. So it's kind of what I think differentiates it. So one of the first and one of the major projects that we've, that data science and analytics has worked on and continues to work on and we're actually going to end up with version three-ish is the assault model. 
and that is really the birth of data science at IDOC. And that was, well, you, um, and um, someone who no works for the DOC, so we're not going to talk about him. Because yeah. he can't get permission. And that's not that I would we, right, right. No, we're not disavowing he was, him. He was a big part of it as well. Yeah, no, definitely our, we had kind of a string of pretty bad um, assaults against our staff. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, we were all pretty concerned about it, but there was a, a picture that our uh, deputy commissioner of operations came over and showed us, and we were just, like, horrified. Um, this person spent an extended period in the hospital for a pretty serious assault. And so we just kind of sat down and we were like, right now we're going to give them kind of something that they can use that they, you know, that we just currently have. Just very data analytics uh, side of things, right? So give us, what, you know, a list of things and you can do some insights on it possibly. Um and so we gave him a list of people that had had prior staff assaults, um, which, I mean, we all know who has assaulted our staff before. That's not, it, it, there's no insight to be had there. You're already watching those people and for the, the most part. And really, from what I've, what I've looked at it later, the interesting part is that if someone assaults a staff member, they usually do it exactly once. So knowing right. who assaulted a staff member previously isn't actually all that helpful. No, no, no. It's, which is counterintuitive, because you think once they start down that path, they're going to keep going. And it really comes down to anyone who assaults a staff, a staff member more than once. You know, Once they hit two and three and say, oh, that guy, uh, he, is, he is clearly okay with that. <laughs> and I think the thing that, that we wanted to do was actually stop assaults. Like, it's great to have a list of people who had uh, actually assaulted somebody before. I mean, that is important to know. Um, but we wanted to actually stop it before it could ever make it to a list, right? So we had gotten some software um, through SAS, um, through a grant, that we hadn't actually been able to use. And so we decided, hey, maybe this is a good opportunity to use that <laughs> so that thing that we haven't used before. Um, and just kind of sat down and started talking through what we thought was important. So the other individual that was part of that conversation had a very kind of different background than myself. I'm the criminal justice practitioner. He's very much uh, got a business background, and so that kind of brought some unique kind of ways of looking at things. Um, So we kind of, through discussions, came up with a kind of, draft model that we took results to the central office leadership and said this is kind of what we're thinking we want to do um, and this is kind of the results that we can get and how much we think we can capture with that model Um, and what do you think we need to do to refine it Um, funnily enough some of the things that they really wanted us to focus on like um STG affiliation, a security threat group mm-hmm. affiliation, what didn't matter. Like, we, we were effectively controlling that type of behavior through policy and procedure that we had in place. So it didn't matter, um, which was, I think, interesting mm-hmm. <laughs> um, as well and helped us kind of sell things. Um, 
because some of the people were very like, well, we expected X, Y, Z things to be super important um, to the model, and we're like, but they're not. I mean, the math will pick what's important, mm-hmm. and it that's not. And that's good. <laughs> You're doing great addressing those things. Um, so out of those kind of initial discussions with leadership, we really knew that we probably needed to talk to line-level staff and more serious subject matter experts. So we had um, focus groups that were kind of multidisciplinary. We took areas from a focus like mental health and you know some of the areas that were kind of high in the model and had kind of subgroups and then they came and reported to the larger group and we refined the model from there. Most of the things that came out of that discussion were um, we were very dealing with a, a kind of a person in a point in time and that was it. The thing that came out of those focus groups was the differences, like the changes in state. So mental health change, whether it be up or down, it didn't matter. It increased your chances of assaulting an individual. Um, so maybe we needed to, you know, give some care. That was the thing that was most important to us with the model as well. And one of the things I think the change portion or addition to the model really helped was that it was now prescriptive. It changed it from just being like, oh, that person, um, to being, oh, that person needs help. And, and there's something I can do to help that person, which was super important to us because one of the major things that we, in that focus group, came out, people were like, we want to put, I don't know, a red sticker on their badge or, you know, if they're high or, you know, put something on the bedboard. Um, and we were very much like that. You can't do that. That's not what this is meant. You are not bad and always bad. It can't. It should not be that way. Ultimately, we want everybody to not be that way, <laughs> ideally. So. Ideally. <clears throat> so you talk about this model. Um, can you kind of describe what that is? Mm-hmm. Um, what What is a model? How did you say so you pulled all this different information together? Um, the different types of information that you got from all the subject matter experts and, and all the feedback that you had that they said, hey, this is important, but you said the math doesn't apply. Mm-hmm. Right. So, right. so what is the model, if I were? Yeah, so I actually think model selection was an interesting part of, of that entire journey. So we had an auto neural network that actually was more powerful than the model that we selected, but <laughs> they are very black box, and people we knew people wouldn't trust it, um, We so we didn't select it. We had a kind of second runner-up that was very close. It was close still, um, power-wise. So we chose that one, and it was a decision tree, and the decision tree is super easy for people to understand because you can kind of walk th- through a population and say, these people are higher, these people are not. And it's very easy to understand. You have this collection of traits, you're higher or lower. Very easy for people to understand, and because of that, easier trust. So that's like kind of how we chose the model. 
Um, the variables in the model, again, were through that discussion that we had. I, I mean, my my criminal justice background um, and just time, time at that point with the DOC to understand kind of what drives criminogenic type behavior or assaultive type behavior. Um, I, have, I have some psychology background as well, and the other individual also um, had a had a master's in uh, psychology as well. So, also helped um, a lot. So, just through that discussion, um, that's how we kind of came up with the initial one, and the again the initial findings were what we presented to the central office folks, and we then took that back and added some more variables into the model to decide whether those were important or not. And that model is what we took to the uh, focus groups. So, I hope that answers the question. <laughs> yes, it does. Um, <clears throat> yes, it does. I mean, it's a, it's a decision tree model. If, if yes, then. If no, then. Mm-hmm. And then you just kind of, depending on the variables, the if yes to variable A, mm-hmm. then it goes over here, and then if no to variable B, then it goes over here, yeah. and that way you can assign a n- number mm-hmm. or a value mm-hmm. and identify different individuals that have a higher likelihood. Yep, propensity of, to to violence. Yeah, to a higher propensity to violence. Yeah. So if you have that higher propensity, you can know that. Oh, maybe you shouldn't poke this person. Right, right. And we should definitely talk about that as well. So that was definitely I would, an unintended consequence of this model. Yes, for sure. Um, but before we get there, yep. So <laughs> when I interviewed for the data science position that was created because Sarah and and Brett uh, had created this model that, that was functional, that worked, and the commissioner thought, hey, we should do more of that. Yep. Um, so listen to her discuss, talk about them all, like, oh, wait, but did you consider where they're physically at? Because every cell house has its own culture, where if you're in, like, an honor dorm, using violence as your go-to solution is not, not great. But or if you're in some of the other dorms that don't follow that same pattern. Violence is the answer. That is that is the solution. If you are in some fashion wronged and you don't respond with violence, you have just made yourself a target. So that was the part that I was interested in uh, of creating a multi-level model that looks at where they're located, not just who they are right now and how they've changed, but where are they presently in, in terms of all those other things. Um, and that's what spawned. So the other thing is, every model that is ever created <laughs> needs to be retrained because people change, and, and large groups of people change. Um, so during the process of trying to retrain the decision tree model, uh, I basically started over and using all of the variables that they had, since we were, uh, rather than starting from scratch. Uh, and built a multi-level logistic model, which is more accurate than than their model. However, 
as Sarah mentioned, it is a black box. So I can say this person, and I can tell them you know, that things would, would have changed so they'd know that, but they, the one level staff may or may not care, or may or may not know how to interpret it. Um, but I can't explicitly tell them you should do this thing because of this person's, the last six months of this person's life. Um, and that's version two. Um, well, we did also have to to retrain the model, and I think this is important to probably tell people um, because we had, between the time that we initiated the model and the time you know that, that Eric got involved in, in the second model, there was a major overhaul in Indiana of the, you know, just general sentencing um, Indiana code associated with, with criminal offenses. So um, just absolutely took away the low-level um, offender population from our institutions, which really changed the dynamic of our prisons, right? So um, one of kind of the major... Um, Reasons why we needed a kind of version two. And I will be frank: um, the program that they used to generate the decision tree gave me fits. Um, I couldn't get it to work correctly, so that's the other reason why I didn't try to retrain on brand new data. To be fair, he had never had any training in it either. So, and I had. So I went to the thing that I understood. And, yeah. and, it, and we're, so we're talking right now, we're talking about SAS, but um, I was really not familiar with SAS that much. So I actually wrote most of that in R and then translated it into SAS so that it would play nice with the rest of our data. Hey there. Sorry for interrupting, but in case anyone got lost, SAS and R are the names of different types of software that can be used for data analysis. Um, uh, that, sometimes that's what you do. You, ha- you have a system that exists, and like, well, okay, I can, I can do this other thing and then move it back over to, to where it belongs. Um, and sometimes that's the option. Um, there's nothing wrong with it. Yeah, it works the, fine. The shop before it was really brought together was um, not <laughs> agnostic. Um, it was very SAS-centric, and that has not been my approach or our approach at all um, to software solutions yeah. at all. Yes. So. <laughs> What's the thing that gives me an answer that I can, that I can do something mm-hmm. with? If it's SAS, I guess I'll do it. Um, but... <laughs> But I prefer R, and that's about it. <laughs> I was like, oh, oh. But I'll do it. Every carpenter has a favorite hammer. It's true. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's the one that gets the results that you can trust. Mm-hmm. That is the one that is the favorite. Mm-hmm. And however you process the information to get the results, um, as long as you can trust it. And you can sell someone else on that that trust and understand the the path on how to get from point A to point B. And and believe it, I mean, so Sarah, when I first found out about this this project, I was just super amazed. It's like, wait, we can do that. Mm-hmm. We can do that within corrections. Mm-hmm. We can do that to help people's lives be better. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, they're in prison. 
but it doesn't have to be horrible all the time. And it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be horrible. I'll just put a full stop there. Because, um, I mean, they're, they're humans, and mm-hmm. I want this, and we, there are charges. Um, there, are, there are essentially wards of the state for the time, time that we have them. And we have a ra- actually a constitutional, <laughs> I guess, mandate to, to make them better um, people, to give them reformation. So mm-hmm. um, that, and I have to, that's a mission that I definitely, definitely believe in. So that's kind of, I think, something that drove maybe this kind of intervention and maybe need to kind of make it just safer and then also prescriptive so that it's not being used as a, as a scarlet letter um, because we all acknowledge that people are not bad and bad for all of time. So if we pull this back to the the assault model, mm-hmm. um, started off as a decision tree model, if yes, then, if no, then, mm-hmm. just kind of highlighting different characteristics. Mm-hmm. And what I've kind of put together through the, the discussions that we've had was by being able to identify specific behaviors and traits, you can possibly or have a higher chance of preventing the the violence Um, can you talk a little bit about some of the numbers some of the you know as far as it's great to say we put this model in place and there were no more staff assaults right right (laughs) so um I don't have the numbers like in front of me um, but I want to say that we compared this, and I, I didn't talk about this portion, but we compared this to the Indiana Risk Assessment um, System and just capture rate of, of you know, assaults using um, just how high risk you are for recidivism. And that is an issue in and of itself, but I could talk about that all day. Um, but <laughs> but um, we did, I want to say, 110% better. <laughs> than uh, using that particular risk instrument. And I think that, I, and here I'll just talk about it. Um, so, you know, I think all of us have risk assessments that are for recidivism, and we're very inclined to want to use those to just as kind of a one-stop shop to say, you're high risk, you're high risk, period. And that's not what it's saying at all. It's saying you have a high risk of recidivism. Period. <laughs> and here are, here are the domains in which you're struggling in. What can we do to help you in those domains? That is, that is what we're trying to do. Um, and so having something, it's not a shock that the capture rate for something that's tailored to um, you know, a particular outcome like, like assaults would capture so many more um but we did once we had we had a pilot for this particular i'll get into numbers now since that was the actual question um so um we had a pilot initially at two of our facilities and i'm going to call them high adopting facilities so we knew that there were two facilities who would probably um 
more readily accept this type of thing because they were just a little more forward-thinking. And so at those two particular facilities, um, we had pretty good outcome. Um, We sat down, we explained to them how it was supposed to be used. We gave um, access in accordance to what the warden um, wanted. And so it could go very shallow into the structure, very deep. Um, At those particular sites, we had a 50% decrease in the amount of assaults at the high adoption sites. So fantastic results at those particular locations. Did not realize that as much at the other locations once we rolled it out, and that may have been um, because they were not, they, they just weren't as educated in the system as those that had kind of been involved in the project from get-go. We realized decreases, but it was more in the like low 30s as opposed to um, you know cutting them in half. So, but that's still that's still any reduction is positive. <laughs> so um, that is great. I mean, we essentially any intervention again is a good intervention. So and. Then the numbers crept up. Yeah. Back up to pre-model levels. Right. Which is, again, where the retraining and the new model came about. Uh, and so, again, so what I used instead of a decision tree was it, uh, a random coefficients logistic regression. Big fancy term. Um, which was more accurate. When I look at historical data, I was, my model was more readily able to find people who would have committed an assault. It, and I would go back even after I released it and looking at every week's who, who committed an assault last week. Cool. Then I go back and check his numbers like, oh yeah, he this said he had an 80%. This said he had a 90%. Um, when comparing to so when you say more accurate, you mean more accurate comparing the old model to the new correct. model. Something that you can compare apples to apples on. Yes. Yeah. Now, Again, my model, while more accurate, also doesn't have the prescriptive element because um, uh, that wasn't my focus. <laughs> I was like, how can I get this number higher? Um, not necessarily effective. However, there, the other problem, problem with that, just like Sarah was mentioning, is buy-in or application. So no matter which model they're using, if the line level staff look at it and go, oh, so there's there's Ted. Ted's a high risk, so we're gonna we're gonna search his cell this week. You have just misused that model, yeah. and that's some of what we what we were seeing, and which is why we started looking at other models. It's like, okay, so if you have this, you're trying clearly trying to use just like with the IRAS, trying to use a recidivism model to predict violence. Like, well, that well, doesn't work. But that's not what it's for. <laughs> Um, we started building other models to try and predict the things that they wanted to know about. But <laughs> Well, and it wasn't even that, like, we guessed that's what they were doing. Oh, yeah, they, they literally they, said so. Yeah. yeah. Uh, from, <laughs> well, yeah. from multiple yes. facilities said that that's what they were doing. Yes, and, the, and they argued with, uh, at one point, one of the facility um, staff argued with me about why they should be using this. Well, we have to do this because this person might be violent, so we have to search their cell neck. New <laughs> that person might go violent, so that's a good reason not to search their cell. Uh, 
but that's a different problem, uh, which does actually bring us up to to now, where we need to rebuild the model anyway. For we just went through a giant data thing, um, and you mean by giant data thing? We we moved everything from a very old system to a very brand new shiny system. It is. It is very shiny, but it. Everything is, it, it, it is like moving your house. It's like, ooh, got a brand new shiny house. So, I don't know where anything's at. Yes. Everything is still in boxes. <laughs> a little terrifying. Yeah. So. Yeah. So starting over so, with your with your data. And, yeah. Yeah. And um, I'm learning from my mistake of ignoring the important part of Sarah's model of, I should actually be able to tell them what to do when the number comes up um, and integrating the accuracy of, of my model. So hopefully the goal is for round three to be both more effectively prescriptive while being while maintaining accuracy. Um, but that's why Benjamin, that's that's his that'll be part of his job is to figure out <laughs> how to be the best of both worlds. Which may or may not work. So no pressure. <laughs> no pressure. Just you know the violence rate within the Indiana Department of Corrections. Lies within your brain. <laughs> you got this. You got this. I, I will say one of the one of the things that comes up from from the development, uh, the historical development of this model, it highlights that um, there is always a give and take that has to be kept in mind because numbers numbers don't lie. Uh, I, n- numbers, you know, when when we meet the assumptions of statistical testing, when we um, have good data, the the processes that are used produce reliable uh, estimates. Neat. That does not necessarily translate to so what. And that's where that balance comes in. Asking, and and sometimes you end up with multiple models because of that as a part of explaining a, a phenomenon. Some that do really focus more on this is the outcome we need to see coming. Sometimes it it really is focusing on this is the outcome we need to prevent. So we're actually really okay with uh, false positives more than we're okay with false negatives. We're okay with saying something's likely to go down because we'd rather be more vigilant more often than miss something that is going to go down. Um, And then there are models that, aside from that predictive component, really are about saying if there's a place to intervene that we manageably can this is where we should start looking. Um, and, and you hear, even in the historical development that y'all described, that this, this process also involves continuing to adapt to the environment as the environment adapts to the fact that we're engaging with it. I mean, putting a model out there changed uh, custody staff behavior in, in a variety of ways across different facilities. And consequently, it change, changes what's coming in as behavioral data for us to look at. So, so yeah, there will, there will be a continued complex engagement with this model. There will be continued complex engagement with a lot of our kind of core models that, um, that have been developed and that will continue to be developed. And that's, a, that's an important process for any um, data science team to keep in mind that there is no, there is no one and done uh, when you're talking about dynamic systems. And there is not much more of a dynamic system than human systems. And corrections is complex at so many levels. 
and uh, it really does require constantly paying attention to that uh, that conceptual balance of the statistical processes as much as you know getting the numbers right. Don't get me wrong, getting the numbers right is vastly important, but um, it's it's not the only thing. Because yeah, knowing someone has a ninety percent chance of violence within the next six months is okay. If that's all I can tell them, which <clears throat> sadly that's all I can tell them, um, <laughs> it isn't necessarily helpful. Yeah. Whereas if you can tell them that this person, you know, recently had a mental health change, uh, you may need to approach them a little differently than you would approach a somebody who's not having a mental health episode. Um, you know, this person lost their job recently, so. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe we need to help them find something to do, or mm-hmm. you know, deal with that stressor in their life. Um, yeah, that, that's a little more helpful to, to staff, obviously, and tells them you know more information than this person is high. What can what does that mean? I'm going to go toss their cell, um, <laughs> which is terrifying to me. Um, and they got exactly what you would expect in mm-hmm. that they got assaulted. I mean, that's not. Yep. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> there's nothing more to say about that. I mean, it's not a shocker. And, and that goes back to, I mean, y- you highlighted it. It is pretty much the only thing stated in the Indiana Constitution yeah. about uh, corrections in, in, in our state that it is to be rehabilitative, not punitive. Yeah. And I am all for focusing on specific outcomes. I don't want assaults to happen. I don't want people to experience the effects of those assaults, but failing to attend to that other side of what got us there is failing to attend to things that will matter later as well. And we do not keep, we don't keep the majority of people forever. 99% of them will go home. So it becomes part of a um, public safety issue that we attend to what is going on uh, in in our residence that we can help intervene with that no, not only helps lower the odds of an assault while they are a ward of the state but when they are a returning citizen it it, it is to a reasonable degree tied together so if you're looking at <clears throat> a person that has an assessment level of say 20 Mm-hmm. For violence, okay. and then we're going along, going along, going along, and then all of a sudden that jumps up to seventy. Mm-hmm. Your question is not what can we do to prevent it to go to ninety. It's why is there a change? Yes, yes. And then, and then you're just using this model to highlight and bring awareness to a change in a person's behavior that you can then effectively engage and bring that number back down possibly yep well said yes exactly I dig it me too (laughs) (laughs) and Benjamin I really like your your discussion on how the model keeps needing to be changed and being updated I mean, one, 
that's great for you know job security. <laughs> but but it also but it also goes to the fact that well, you guys were saying that when you institute something, it's kind of like time travel. You're you're messing with the outcome, and as soon as the outcome changes, then you have to change the predictive factors. Mm-hmm. Um, one description of data science that I've that I've heard is that it doesn't predict the future, it creates the future. Because if I tell you that you know there's an 80% chance that Benjamin is going to do X, Y, or Z, you're now anticipating him to do that. And your behavior will likely affect his likelihood of behaving in that way. Specifically thinking about um, in either direction with, with the model. So if we say this offender has an 80% chance of violence, I can either go interact with that person in a horrible way, such as tossing their cell, and more or less guarantee that an assault will occur. Or I can find out why they're at 80% and get them back on in, you know, back in mental health treatment or back on substance abuse or get them a job or whatever, and then prevent that violence from happening. Um, so it's no longer just an event that might occur. It's an event that you're walking into with some knowledge about, about the likelihoods of, of going forward. And I have accidentally wandered into discussing Bayes again. I'm sorry. <laughs> Why would you ever be sorry for that? <laughs> <laughs> What's to apologize for, Eric? Sorry to interrupt, but this is where the discussion drastically changes. We pick up on the conversation in the next episode. I'd like to thank Eric, Benjamin, and Sarah for the amazing work that they are doing and carving out part of their day to chat with me. This recording is brought to you from the Barry Down Government Consulting Team. If you have any questions, I can be reached at C-C-O-V-E-Y at BarryDunn.com. You can find out about the government consulting team at BarryDunn.com. This episode was produced by Eric and myself. I'd also like to thank Doug Rowe, Seth Hedstrom, and Chad Snow for making this possible. Till next time.